You're listening to The Dream Dealer's Daughter, written and read to you by Emily McCumber. Support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you can, please rate and review the show as well. This really helps me out. Thanks. This is Chapter 4, The Reflection. As Nargis steps further into this physical variance of New York City, it's not her father or his now dead body or Elodie that fills her thoughts. It's Isaac. Who knows how long he'll have to wait for repairs. She couldn't express any of this to Largo. His first question would be, why didn't the repairs get done in the time span scheduled for your appointment? His next would be, why did the dreams need repairs in the first place? I trained you better. Nargis thinks into her uniform. Unless an assignment demands otherwise, she and the rest of Largo's dreamers must always be dressed professionally. Largo has loosely defined the uniform as no athletic wear, sneakers, or t-shirts. Nothing that will stand out in the variants one is currently stationed, and nothing branded. Since comfortable dresses and sneakers or jeans and oversized button-downs aren't considered professional, she wears suits when on assignment. She learned early on that clothes are important to the bodied. The people would treat her differently based on her outfit, and her suits have become a form of deception. Today's is a three-piece pinstripe she tokened from Annalise, a stylist from a variance of the 1990s. The street outside on house is congested with foot traffic. Faces blur past, everyone possessing a destination, everyone but Nargis. She has a goal, a quest, but it's lost, somewhere within the chaos of the unknown. A thought pesters at the forefront of her mind. What if this is all a ploy to redirect her focus and sabotage her embodiment? No. She shakes these doubts away. This is simply Largo needing something from her. And maybe, if she does what he asks, he'll take back postponing her embodiment. It's a slim chance, but still a possibility. A sea of language is spoken around her. Smells bombard her Lilia senses. Light is the most obtrusive, that of the sun. But it warms her skin, and instinct has her stalling in the street to absorb what light she can. Not for the first time, she wonders what it must be like to experience this with a real body instead of the idea of one. Skyscrapers tower overhead. Often she forgets which buildings exist in the many versions of this city. The Twin Towers haven't been built yet, but what of the Empire State Building? If they don't exist now, will they soon be part of this variance? Nargis moves out of the main flow of traffic and finds solace in a quiet alley. She glances upward, sees a mostly blue sky with a smattering of gray clouds. Lives flicker into her awareness, the sounds of families going about their day floating out of open windows. Narcus raises the knife into the sunlight. Conrad's blood still dirties the blade, a crusty brown reminder of her task. Her Lilia persona has a heartbeat. She has the presence of pumping blood and a chest that expands with each inhale. It never feels quite right though, like an echo of the real thing. But when her hands brush the cool metal of this blade, sensation is immediate. The city sounds, the traffic, pedestrians, and construction, the indistinct chatter of lives being lived, fade into a monotonous murmur as her focus pours into the knife clutched in her hands. It's hiding something, and the intricate pattern of symbols is most definitely a message. Conrad's murderer held this in their grasp, 
Traces of their air should be smattered along with the blood. Facts about the kill should lurk in its presence. Whoever they are, they are minded enough to defense this weapon's truth. But why go through the trouble of defensing a physical object, only to leave it behind? She slips the knife into the inside pocket of her jacket, holding her hand near for a moment. The knife accepts her touch as something real, but will it trust the support of her clothes that, like her body, are merely an idea? There's one place she can think of that'll have information on the symbol scrawling the hilt. It's not ideal going to Eldwain's library, considering he has a habit of reporting all that Nargus researches to Largo. But in this case, it's better he knows the progress of her journey, an alibi of sorts if things get weird. She can feel it, the oddity of this knife. Things aren't adding up. Few variances have permanent entrances to Eldwain's library, and this happens to be one of them. Nargus exits the safety of the alleyway, catching a few glances here and there from an amusing assortment of people. She doesn't mind the attention, though. There's an older lady who she catches staring from across an intersection. When Nargus gives a little nod hello, the woman shakes her head and casts her focus elsewhere. Then there's the little boy holding onto his mother's hand. He waves at Nargus, and she waves back before sending a thought in his direction. There's the businessman dressed in his fancy plaid suit. It's not so much his outfit that draws Nargus's attention, but how he studies her with adept shock. Maybe this one isn't used to seeing bodiless minds about. For the minded that do see her, there isn't anything that outright says she's in a persona and not a body. It's the little things. The fact that it's October and she hasn't bothered with a thick coat or hat. And of course, the mark in her air claiming her as one of Largo's dreamers. The minded belonging to this variance are odd. Largo claims it has to do with the presence of the scape. Every-minded person in this time is worried about being discovered, but she thinks it's more than fear that makes them so reserved. It's like everyone in a city known for being different is overly concerned about blending in, and she most definitely does not blend. To the priors like the little boy's mother, she's not even on their radar, but to the minded, she's a target and a threat. Nargis surveys the approaching intersection. She's probably an hour's walk from the library, it's breaking Largo's rules regarding the navigation of physical times, but thinking is way quicker than walking. It's all too much. The many overlapping conversations held in various languages, the sneezing, the coughing, the yelling. For a split moment, she turns off Lilia's perception, and gone is the chaos of the street. Arising in the brief quiet is another bustling area. Looming before her is Majestic Theater, home to the best shows on Broadway, and a rare physical entrance to Eldwayan's library. It never ceases to be amazing. The gilded crown molding, the velvet seats, and the steep incline from seating to stage. Best of all is the smell of stagnant air, as though this theater clings to everything and everyone that visits. Aldwayan must pay a hefty price for the theater to keep him well hidden, as little reveals his presence. Many of the lights are off, but she knows her way. On the second level on the left is a private box with three seats that never sell. Pull back the curtain and one might find a mindless body or two. This morning, Nargis pulls open the red curtain to find a body residing in one of the three seats. Their eyes are open, but unblinking. They sit there, perfectly relaxed, and their chest still rising with breath. It'd be so easy to think they are sleeping with their eyes open. In the chair beside the mindless body, Nargis deposits the knife, hoping her fellow researcher knows not to take what doesn't belong to them. 
She rests her hands on the railing overlooking the theater, feels the metal shifting upon her intent to enter. She pushes, and her view of the empty stage spins open like a door. Looking down, she finds a grassy cliff has replaced the theater's red carpeting. Spreading her arms wide, she dives into the void. It's always a rush, giving in to the fall of Eldwain's library. There is no wind during the journey, no passing scenery to let the faller know they are, in fact, descending. There is simply the unanimous expectancy of an eventual landing that weighs on her air. She hits cold water. The obsidian waves are relentless as they crash overhead. Lilia's idea of lungs demand oxygen. Nargis fights for the surface, but none of her thoughts are working, and the weight dragging her down grows stronger, pulls her further into the library. It's when the need for air is unbearable that she stops struggling. She forces herself to relax, forces herself to quiet this fear that isn't hers at all, and instead is an emotion Eldwain's library has thrust upon her. Nargis knows it's a test and a hard one to pass. Her mouth refuses to open at first, but this water, this unrelenting ocean, is the library, and she must inhale to accept it. The water is icy as it pools in her mouth. When it touches her tongue, a message arrives. Welcome, Nargis. You haven't visited in a long while. What brings you to my library? I'm on assignment, she replies, and have a question only your collection can answer. Very well. Like the new setting, I made it with you in mind. She smiles as she drowns. How flattering. Enjoy, Nargis, and stay safe. Without fail, Eldwain always knows when she arrives. Thousands upon thousands of minds contribute to this library, and still, he can easily find her heir in the mix. The drowning doesn't last forever. At the bottom of this ocean, she finds another shoreline. This one is bathed in sunshine and littered with shells. A mind that resembles the body in the theater chair stands up to their ankles in clear blue water. In their hand, they hold a pale shell. A question leaves them, travels into the shell before they toss it deep in the ocean. An answer builds from afar, growing larger until it crashes over the mind. Nargis wades toward the second shore and picks up a random shimmering shell. She gives it the image of the language scrawling the knife, deposits it in the sand at her feet, and watches the waves draw her question out with the tide. Soon, the very shell Nargis sent out returns, and the ocean before her fills with knowledge. When she touches the water, no warmth reaches her skin, just information. The name of the blade, Asimago meaning one of a collection. Transcription on the blade, in my reflection lies the path. Come and find me. When the second wave arrives, Nargis steps back, as washing up in the tide are hundreds of knives. A green blade stands out from the rest. It's crafted of what appears to be jade, and carved into the handle is a language she understands without Eldwain's translation. For Ashlyn, may we fight apart with one strength. The shore rolls out and swoops back in, delivering more information. Asimago knives, always made in pairs, one blade always leads to the other, so that the wielder of the blade may find their fighting companion or companions if ever separated. A common gift among Pertes. Nargis returns the jade Asimago to the water and steps out of the second ocean's reach. One always leads to the other. Does this mean she only has to let the blade lead her in the right direction, or the wrong one? A common gift among Pertes. Why would someone leave this precious blade for her to find? She turns away from the shore and says goodbye to this setting of Aldwain's library. The locations are forever on rotation, 
so rarely does someone experience the same version twice. Next, she sends her thanks to Eldwain and waits for the exit to arrive. A wave reaches down from the obsidian surface, coils around her mind, and drags her back to the theater. The other visitor is gone. They must have left while Nargis was researching, but thankfully, the knife remains. In my reflection lies the path. Come and find me. Nargis looks beyond the transcription of symbols and finds she isn't reflected in the chrome. She stares at a scene that's muddled and much too small, but still recognizable. The harder she focuses, the more the blade reveals. Down a set of stairs into an underground space. A queue of people stand before a ticket window. There's a long hall full of people rushing in every direction, and signs hanging from a tiled ceiling. A subway station. The scene stops, centering in on one sign in particular. She waits for more, but it only repeats, down the stairs to the sign. The queue. Service to Brooklyn. You've just listened to The Dream Dealer's Daughter, written and read to you by Emily McCumber. I want to say a quick thanks to the musicians and artists who make their songs and sound effects available on royalty-free services like the one I use. The Dream Dealer's Daughter is a weekly show with one new chapter released every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Early access chapters are available on the show's Supercast landing page, where you can binge all of season one. Visit my author website, emilymccumber.com, or go to dreamdealersdaughter.supercast.com to get early access to season one's chapters. If you listen to podcasts on the regular, you know just how important reviews and ratings are. It would be awesome, fantastic, if you could subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps tell the algorithm, hey, this show is important. Maybe we should push it out to more listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next chapter. The Dream Dealer's Daughter. Copyright 2022. Emily McCumber.